If you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I highly recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about trick-taking. Talking about trick-taking games. These are some of the oldest games in existence, but what does it look like to create modern versions of these really old-school types of games? And we're talking to Fertessa Elise from Funko Games. Fertessa, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be on here. Yeah, really glad to have you here. You and I met each other many moons ago back at Origins way back, I don't know, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's so cool because at the time you were just, I think, just starting to get into game design and just starting to figure things out and design games and work on things. And it's so cool mm-hmm. to kind of see how far you've come in a very short amount of time. Uh, now you're working for a major game company and you've got several games that are coming out. I've seen several of your games hit Kickstarter recently. And so congrats on just kind of your journey so far. And I'm really just uh, excited to have you here. And uh, before you. we get into trick taking, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. So I am uh, Fertessa Elise, and I was born and raised in Atlanta, though currently I'm based in Seattle. Um, I got into the hobby just about four or five years ago, 2017, Um, but I've always had a love of games um, since I was a kid and, you know, playing it with my parents and grandparents and such, Uh, but it was always kind of the... uh, card games and, and, and Monopoly and, and things like that. So I didn't really become aware of the hobby until um, more recently. And uh, through my exploration of these modern board games and through game design itself, I just found a, a new passion for board games. And um, I, I found that that was something that I really wanted to do. And, and through going down that path, it, it brought me to working professionally within the industry. So here I am. Yeah, very, very cool. And now you work as a games producer at Funko. And mm-hmm. so tell me like how that happened, how you kind of got that job and what do you do now? Because I feel like a lot of people who listen to this show would love to work in the industry full time, would love to work for a, a company like Funko and work on really cool IP games and Back to the Future mm-hmm. and all the, all the Harry yeah. Potter. And like there's so many cool things that Funko is doing. So tell me about that. Yeah. So it actually wasn't that very long ago, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, I decided that I wanted to move to Seattle uh, just because I wanted a, a change of scene, change of, um, of scenery, wanted a more walkable city and um, all sorts of other external things. Uh, but once I decided to move to Seattle, I put the feelers out for job hunting and I made it known that if possible, I wanted to get a job within the industry as there were a lot more opportunities in Seattle than there were with Atlanta um, as far as that goes. And really, I was looking for a job in any capacity in the industry just to kind of be more surrounded by board games. Um, 
So again, I, I put it out to friends and acquaintances. Um, and I always, I also put myself out there for any side gigs that I could do, whether it was rule book reading, um, whether it was kind of, um, being a consultant for, uh, rule books or, or, or game pros. Um, and I also was continuing my own design. I was play testing thoroughly, giving my feedback, things like that. Any, any capacity that I could help within the community, I was trying to do that. And, um, through putting myself out there, I was, uh, able to get the attention of Cassandra, uh, whatever, and she reached out to see if I was still moving to Seattle. And um, she recommended that I um, interview with uh, my current boss, DC. And, um, you know, I got an interview um, for the game producer uh, position at Funko, um, Funko Games. And it was interesting because it was actually a, a contract position at first. Um, and it was only for, I want to say three months, which is really nerve wracking when you're moving like across country and you only have like a con contracted job, but, um, it was something that I really wanted to do. And it felt like a once in a lifetime opportunity because very honestly, I didn't think that I would be able to get to work professionally within the industry until like decades from now. That was like my retirement plan was, uh, you know, once I've, I've don't have to worry about anything, I'm just gonna, you know, make board games and, and it doesn't matter whether or not it affects my income. Cause I'll be retired. Um, but I actually ended up being able to interview for this position and, um, they, they really liked that. I had so much extensive experience with play testing and, um, that I had seen uh, three games from conception to um, the production or rather the signing phase of it. And, um, you know, that I just over all these years had built up the experiences that um, really lent themselves to the game producer position. So um, that is how I ended up uh, getting into my role as a game producer. Very cool. And it's such a great example of you just got to shoot your shot. You got to put yourself out there and, and say, hey, I'm looking for this thing. And then, you know, a lot of times the universe will will reach back, you know, what I mean, and, mm -hmm. and so, so often people, they have a dream, they have an idea, but they don't tell anybody and they don't put themselves out there. And then it's no wonder that it yeah. doesn't work out. And so congrats on, on things working out and getting into the industry. But tell me a little bit more about yeah. what it means to be a producer, like help me understand kind mm -hmm. of the inner workings of Funko, because this is a pretty big organization, especially compared mm -hmm. to most indie gaming publishers that are like one person doing 12 jobs. Like Funko has mm -hmm. a lot of employees, a lot of things going on, a lot of games. Tell me yeah. kind of what you do as a producer and like give me a little bit of behind the scenes into Funko. Yeah. So Funko, which uh, is formerly known as Prospero Hall. So if you've seen Prospero Hall titles or Funko games titles, they're one in the same. Um, or they're made by the same team of people. Um, but the very interesting thing um, you may find about Funko Games is that everything is done internally. So normally you have kind of um, indie publishers who will be pitched different games and then they, you know, decide to contract with those designers and, and take them to production. But for Funko Games, um, all of the game designers are internal as well as the game producers. So whenever we decide to do a game, we decide internally, hey, we want to do a game about X, let's say Fast and Furious. 
because um, we work with IPs a lot. So once they decide they want to do a game on a certain IP, then they'll say, okay, I'm going to assign this producer and this game designer to that title. Um, you guys have this deadline, which is however many months from now, and you have this budget. So then as a game producer, you have to look at that budget and deadline, and then you have to work together with your game designer in order to make the game itself, but also hit the internal deadlines so that you get your files to the factory on time. Um, you also have to make sure that you are like doing everything that um, properly stays within the, the standards of the license, that everything looks right, that everything um, is thematic and, and, and representing the license in the best way possible. Um, and, and then you also want to make sure that it's just a, a very um, fun and, and um, accessible game experience. So you are juggling that, you're juggling the artists, um, you're juggling the timeline, and um, you are juggling the, the actual game design itself. And um, I mentioned it before, but Funko Games is very much team environment based. You'll never see an individual name on the um, games because the entire studio um, has a hand in how these games are made. Everybody play tests within the studio. Everybody can, can contribute to game concept ideas, no matter what their title is. Um, and even as a producer, you know, your, your job may be more of a project management thing, but you can easily be the person that's also designing the game. So, you know, right now I'm doing a hybrid of I'm designing games, but I'm also producing them and keeping them to their timeline. And I really love that um, the company allows us to be that flexible and really just it doesn't pigeonhole us into one specific role based off of the title. Um, so in uh, Funko Games, the, the game producer is like a project manager, but you are not restricted to just that. Gotcha. That's really cool. And I can see why they're able to put out so many games and uh, do a lot of really cool things if they have this kind of like team environment of everybody working on, on stuff and pushing things forward. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And again, congrats on being able to kind of live a dream, maybe a little earlier. You know, you're not 65. <laughs> you're, you're a little younger than that. And so uh, again... That's, mm -hmm. I'm so happy for you in that. All right, but let's uh, let's turn to the topic at hand. Let's talk about trick-taking games. But before we even get into that, what's a good like working definition? So when you say trick-taking game, what does that even mean? To me, trick-taking game is whenever you are mainly utilizing cards in order to win um, a collection of cards, whether it's books or you might call them tricks, but you are trying to win a hand of cards that everyone has played. So um, you use that by some combination, like usually you'll see it as the highest card played out of a round of cards, uh, but certain trick-taking games may have different stipulations. Um, so whatever defines the trick of that particular um, game is, is how you make progress and win. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said in the intro, 
These, these kinds of games have been around for so long that there are just a ridiculous number of ways for these games to be played. And sometimes it's high and sometimes it's low and sometimes it's color and sometimes it's icon and sometimes it pairs the three of like There's so many different ways that people have come up with. And that's actually something I want to talk about <laughs> here in a yeah. little bit because creating a new one of these is no small task. And so <laughs> it's really interesting uh, how many games have done like different things. But at the end of the day, it's play a card and try to win other cards or maybe not depending on the game. But anyway, you're playing cards and, and you know down to uh, kind of center of the table and figuring mm-hmm. it out from there. And so what are some of your favorites? Uh, you know, like I said, these games have been around forever. There's a lot of like old school games and some new school ones. And so tell mm-hmm. me some of the ones you really uh, love or are drawn to. Yeah. So hands down, my favorite trick taking game is spades. I grew up with it. It, it. it is more than just a game to me at this point. It was kind of a rite of passage um, it was something that we played in school when we had downtime. It was something that we played on class trips. It was something I played with my family. It, it was a game that almost everyone within my community knew about or knew how to play. Um, and it was kind of like your proving ground of, oh, how good are you in spades? Do I want to be your partner? So I absolutely love um, spades for the memories that it gave me, as well as just the nature of the game, that partnering nature. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think when you grow up in the South, especially mm-hmm. in certain parts of the South, this is just what you play. There's no, it's like, this is what we do. I don't know. Why would you yeah. do anything else? Why would you play any <laughs> other game? You know, we're at a barbecue, let's play spades. And so yep. that's just kind of how it is. And it's also amazing with spades. And mm-hmm. let's, I'll let you tell people kind of how to play here in just a second. But what's amazing mm-hmm. with it is it like, it really doesn't matter what cards some people are dealt. They just mm-hmm. know how to play so well and they, yep. they just win. And it doesn't like, it's not random. You would think, oh, it's a card game. Everybody's getting mm-hmm. lucky depending on what hand you're, you're given. Mm-hmm. But some people are so good at this game that they mm-hmm. win no matter what. And it's just yes. a really interesting game. Like you're saying, the emotion that's involved and the attitude and the fun and the trash talk and all that. Mm-hmm. Just so many cool experiences. But tell me about Spades. Like how do you play it? And like what, what makes it a really interesting game just from like a mechanical standpoint? Yeah. So you and your partner, it's a four player game and um, everyone's dealt their cards. And then each team has the opportunity to decide how many books they think they can win and books being kind of uh, rounds or hands that they think that they can win by um, the time all of the cards in your hand are played. Um, So you have to kind of, that's the first part of the game is making that bid. um, Because if you go above it, or below it, then you're going to end up losing points based off of that. Um, and then, you know, if you you have to figure out, like, can you hit right on the money with that? And you have to also kind of, how do you say, it? you have to kind of um, feel out your opponents to see who is uh, uh, overestimating what they're capable of. Because if your team says that they could do like, seven and their team says that they think they can do seven there's a problem that's not possible so it's um it's first deciding you know how many books do you think you can win um then you go into the game um and each one will get each person will get the chance to play one card um you have to play on suit and the object is to have the highest card of the suit but the thing is spades are what are the trump of this particular card game. And if you are able to cut and play, uh, play a spades and cutting is whenever you are no longer able to play on suit, um, you can play a spade, which is going to be the strongest card in the game or strongest suit in the game. And you can take that entire book. Um, and it gets its name 
from that, from spades being the Trump suit. Um, so you have to figure out how to um, either let your partner cut with spades or get yourself to cut with spades because you're not allowed to really table talk in spades. You're not allowed to communicate uh, what's in your hand, but um, it gets really meta because if you and your partner really know each other, you could just make the most casual thing um, hint at what might possibly be in your hands. Like, Ooh, you jumped really high, didn't you? You know, like you is a very interesting balance of trying to win, but also not trying to step on the toes of your partner. Um, and, and it, it's, it builds such a story, um, within each game. And, and if you continue to play with the same people, it, it builds up on that, but the very, it's very simple in that you are trying to play the highest card at each round and get those books. And you are trying to get as many books as you and your partner decided that you could win at the beginning of the game. Um, but everything that happens in between is, uh, is so dramatic and, and it brings so much, so many stories and so many moments to the table, big moments, um, which, which, is why spades makes such an impact um, on me and and why I love it so much. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a great game because you're not only playing the game, you're also playing the other people at the table and mm -hmm. it's got that other whole like mind game, emotion kind of thing going on. Uh, and yeah, it's such a good game. Now there's also hearts, which is mm -hmm. also uh, kind of one of these old school games that just uses a basic deck of cards. And in that one, it's more individualistic and you're trying to not get points. You're trying to throw off points into other people's hands and the, the hearts are the only thing that counts. And I think the queen of spades is worth 13 and that's mm -hmm. a really good one. Then there's rook, which is kind of similar and it's also got some of these, these vibes. And so, yeah, those are some of the three like old school ones that always pop into my head mm -hmm. when I'm, when I'm thinking of like trick taking games. What about some new school ones, any modern day games that you really love? Yeah, I, I really enjoy uh, playing skull King um, and there's, <laughs> there's a German one with birds that I've been trying to find for days because it wasn't even translated the time that I played it. It was at a convention. Um, and it was such a simple, uh, take on trick taking that I really enjoyed. And to this day, I cannot remember what it is, but if anyone does, please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> now tell me what makes these interesting. Like how do these games have a modern twist to this old school mechanic? Mm. Well, with Skull King, it was my first time kind of playing a a modern trick-taking game. And what I really enjoyed about that was that you still had this nature of trying to guess what the other person was going to play. Because, yes, you have your, your different um, numbers and, and trying to win the highest numbers, but... Um, this was a game where you have to be highly aware about suits. There are mermaids, there, there's the actual Skull King, uh, there are pirates. And like, depending on what you play, that suit might be stronger than the other, kind of in a rock, paper, scissors sort of a way. Um, and the timing of when you play a card is also very important because you know, maybe you have a card that would have normally won, but because you played that suit after somebody else had, um, that could nullify the card that you played. Um, so I think that it just had a very interesting take to that kind of um, rock, paper, scissors ordering of, of how you play the suits and the timing. Um, and it also had a nice kind of meaty um, game duration that I like. Um, 
while I'm, I can appreciate short trick takers, I do enjoy trick takers that, that um, have you sitting there for maybe around the 60 minute mark. Um, and Skull King plays at a much higher player count also. Um, but I like to really get in there and, and kind of think about the strategy of the thing. And um, it, it, even though you're sitting there for a little bit, it doesn't feel like you're sitting there for that long. You just look at the clock and you're like, wow, that took more time than I anticipated. So it it was a big punch in uh, such a small package. Like I never expected to be um, that length, but that's why I enjoy skulking. And um, as for that mysterious game <laughs> back at the convention, I really remember enjoying the simplicity of it. Like it, I just sat down and within five minutes, I knew how to play. Um, and I remember it being so very elegant, but I, I just wish I, I could remember more details. Just birds is in German and it's trick taking. Please tell me. <laughs> gotcha. And yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. It's so cool how these games, they don't necessarily feel samey. I guess they can eventually, but every hand is a new opportunity and you have a new you know, hand of cards. And so like there's different things like, so your brain is constantly having to work in new ways and mm-hmm. it's very tactical. But at the same time, there's a little bit of strategy, especially in a game like Spades, where you're trying to really think through the entire, you know, all right, we're going to get seven books or we're get ten books, whatever. Like, there's some strategy involved. So it's mm-hmm. interesting. But at the same time, that you're going to do that a whole bunch of times over the course of a game. Yeah. And so, you know, it kinda, it's constantly giving you new, new things to think about, new uh, problems to solve. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the modern games that I really enjoy is called Ebbs, E-B-B-E-S, Ebbs. And it's also a German game. And what I love about this one is it's very... Typical in, in how the game plays, you're playing out cards and there's trump suits. And I guess we need to define that trump is a card that is a, a higher version than the other cards. And so uh, when you play it, it's more powerful than the other cards. Typically in spades, like you mentioned, the spade is mm-hmm. the trump card and other games have different ways of handling it. But the, the trump is kind of like the, the all powerful number or uh, suit or color or something like that. And so in ebbs, you don't know what the trump is going to be. You don't know which cards are worth points, which cards are worth negative points. You don't know different things about each hand until you actually get into the hand and you're playing. And mm-hmm. when certain cards come out, it all of a sudden tells you, oh, these are the trump cards. Oh, these are the cards worth points. Oh, these are worth negatives. And so it, you can, and sometimes it's late into the hand where you've already played a whole bunch of, of, of books and you have a whole bunch of cards in front of you and you're still not sure which cards are worth points and which ones are negative. And so it's, it kind of gets tense because sometimes you don't know till towards the end. So I think that's just a really cool way to turn this whole genre uh, on its head. And then also got to, got to mention Uno. Uno is not a great game <laughs> by any stretch. It's not a lot of choices. It's very much a, a kind of family kids weight game, but mm-hmm. it's so simple. Anybody can play it. You can sit down, you can explain it in about 15 seconds and yeah. you can play it. And it's one of my favorite games just to, to bust out and just play randomly you know, a lot of time uh, in Atlanta, uh, I work with different mission organizations and, and we'll mm-hmm. go out and serve lunch or serve dinner to people experiencing homelessness. And we always carry games with us. And the three games we carry are chess because people on the street are phenomenal chess players. Uh, but then also Jenga and Uno, because you can play Jenga and Uno immediately. Everyone knows how to play. You can sit down, you're eating lunch, you're having dinner, you're hanging out, talking, laughing with people. And then you're playing a quick game. Everybody mm-hmm. knows how to play and it's fun. And yeah, so got to mention Uno in that as well. Any others that can be your mind, either old school or, or new school, as far as games that people should really check out if they want to design a trick-taking game? I think those are the main ones right now that come to mind because all the other ones I played were prototypes and I'm waiting eagerly for them to come. 
Um, Fair enough. (laughs) Fair enough. And we can also talk about Wicked and Wise, your Mm -hmm. trick-taking game here in a minute. And then uh, we can -hmm. can suggest people play that one uh, as well. But before we get into uh, your game specifically, tell me why someone would want to design one of these. Like we already said, there's been a whole bunch of these over a long period of time. It's Mm -hmm. kind of a challenge at this point to design something. People go, oh, this is interesting versus, oh, this is just spades with different suits. This is Mm -hmm. hearts with a different idea. And so it's kind of hard to create anything new and so tell me why like what made you want to design one of these games yeah so actually it was the exploration of two different ideas um the first idea was that um i'm a little bit averse to playing uh cooperative games and i was exploring why that was and what aspects of cooperative games i did find fun so i wanted to um think about like if i could make a cooperative game what would that include And it led me down the path of thinking about partnering games and spades, because to me, you are still cooperating with another person, but there's enough agency where you don't know what is in their hand. Um, And it's not so much about the puzzle that you're doing. It's more about working together in order to make the best of this random situation you've been thrown into, because you don't know what kind of cards you're going to necessarily get. So I was very interested in exploring um, cooperation as a, a um, team rather than as like a, a group versus the board. And then um, the other thing I wanted to explore is that, you know, when I got into the hobby, I noticed things like spades and, and hearts and euchre, they weren't necessarily brought up. Like you go to a gaming convention, you don't see people playing spades. But that game was such a near dear um, game to my heart and something that I grew up with, and it didn't seem to have a presence within the community. And I, I really sat there and thought thought about it because I prev- it was more prevalent for me to play spades um, with my parents, with my friends who weren't gamers. And they would easily sit down and sit there for like two hours playing spades. And um, when you think about it, trick-taking is not an easy genre. It's not a gateway genre. Um, necessarily, when you think about spades, at least. And I was thinking about the layers that spades has because you have bidding. Um, you also have the actual trick taking um, and and there's strategy going on. There are like different mechanics going on within spades, a lot of complex mechanics going on. Um, and people who aren't gamers play it all the time. They are gamers. They just don't label themselves as gamers. And I was so very intrigued by that idea that there's this entire subset of people that you, um, that, that get excluded from the hobby or aren't even included in the hobby, um, when they, you know, digest so many different mechanics for a game that they've decided to dedicate themselves to. Um, so I really wanted to, you know, explore that a little bit more deeply to see like, how could that be pushed? How could, you know, I cooperate with another person, but still have that competitive action. And then how could I also kind of bring in a a community that um, is a a little bit not, not included or not thought about whenever you think about the gaming community, because these hearts players, spades players, they're, they're kind of thought of as a whole separate thing. And um, the, that to me that they're just potential gamers waiting to be, you know, brought in by a new game that um, they maybe haven't seen yet. So that's what got me thinking about um, trick taking and, you know, how I could make a game that could 
hopefully reach out to um, those people and and also um, answer that internal question that I had. Yeah, for sure. And this is such a great place to begin a game design. And, you know, we've already done this over and over and over again with Yahtzee. You know, Yahtzee's mm-hmm. been around forever. And then all of a sudden, kind of the deeper, more hobby games started coming out using the exact same mechanism, but in totally new ways and with custom dice and, and mm-hmm. different ways to look at it, different angles. And so, yeah, why not do the same kind of thing thing with hearts or spades or rook? And and some games already have, but to know to nowhere near the degree of Yahtzee and some of these other mm-hmm. kind of old school uh, games. And so I think that's such a cool way to begin. And so tell me what happened next. So you wanted to kind of create this experience, especially an experience that, that you grew up on and you mm-hmm. remember and you love. And so then what, right? So then how yeah. do you kind of translate that into an actual game that is a little bit modernized, a little bit more going on than mm-hmm. space? Yeah. So that's uh, when I kind of start pushing the angle of like, what aspects do I enjoy about cooperative games? And for me, I love when there are asymmetric roles or roles that no other player can do because that gave me more agency and independence um, in making decisions, uh, regardless of how much information the other players had. Um, And so whenever I decided that for my game, definitely it had to be partners, I wanted to explore where each partner had a unique role um, rather than having overlapping roles. Um, And so that is what kind of really got the wheel rolling because it's just like, how do you have two people work together towards the same objective um, while they're doing different things? And how do you engage them on their different roles without disengaging them as partners? Because they can't be so involved in their personal roles that they don't care about what their partner is doing. Um, And they also need to be able to Um, collaborate enough in order to uh, make progress towards the same goal. So like figuring out how to answer those questions are what led me into my first prototype and and, um, the first few months of um, just what the game could be. Gotcha. All right. So tell me a little bit more. Give me the the synopsis of Wicked and Wise, and then we can kind of break down the new concepts, the ways you were trying to maybe look at the the genre in a different way. But first, give me like the two minute overview. Yeah. So in Wicked and Wise, you are partnered. um, You are dragging a mouse. The dragon is in charge of trick taking and the mouse is in charge of stacking their partner's hand and offering support so that their partner can win those tricks. Um, Usually in trick-taking, everybody is trying to play a card in order to win the trick, but um, the cards in Wicked and Wise are dual purpose. So the dragon is using the card for its number and winning the trick, but the mouse is using the abilities at the bottom of the card. Their numbers do not matter. They do not help win the trick at all. But what the mouse can do is stack their partner's hand with the trump cards um, because Unlike in other trick-taking games, you don't start with the best cards. Um, Only the mice partners can get them and then feed them by swapping. Um, And when they swap, they can also have the potential to take cards from their partner, which would allow them to uh, basically bleed out a suit um, so that they are able to play those trump cards. Um, So it's something that trick-takers can enjoy, but also people who don't enjoy trick-takers. Um, can enjoy because it 
allows them to be in a role where there's not so much pressure because they are now offering the support and um, don't have to worry about kind of that fear of, am I playing the right card? Or, you know, it feels very random. They're, they have a lot more um, control over um, how they manipulate the situations in the game. Yeah, very cool. And I love how each player on the team has a little bit different role. And that's very much a, a new take on things because normally I'm just playing a card, then you play a card, and then we're trying to hopefully work together. But in this game, like it's a little bit different. So tell me kind of about that. Was, was that there from early on? Was that part of the first design or does that mm -hmm. was that something that kind of developed over time? Yeah. So um, from the very first, it was always about the partners having different roles. Um, but over time, it, it was about finding the balance of what that meant and what being a team meant, um, because it for a long time, it, it felt like um, they didn't quite sync up um, because I either made one role way too interesting versus the other um, or the reverse. Um, and then once you got to that, actually paring down the communication and, and making it where it's too much or too little. Um, there is a lot of balancing with that. And then um, on top of that, you have goals because I'm going to use space as an example. You set a bid at the beginning to say how many books that you think you can win, how many tricks you think you can win. But with this game, instead you have team goals that you set at the very, the very beginning, their cards, um, that can say, you know, your team needs to win two tricks exactly out of five, or um, your team can needs to win eight cards of a certain suit. Um, and at the end of the round, if you've made your goal, you will get coins, which is how you would win the game. But if you don't make your goal, then you would lose half of those coins. So there's like a push your luck element that got added um, to kind of um, bid on how you think your team will do. It also gives your team direction as to what they should be doing rather than just a straightforward, let's win every trick. Um, it's in this game, it can be valuable to lose tricks um, so that you can win the goals. Um, and then uh, later on, we also included these kind of treasures, which are like player powers that also gave player's agency on bending the rules of the trick. So maybe for this round, low cards win, or maybe for this round, my team will get one coin for every odd numbered card that gets played. Um, so there are all these little variables that can help your team win money, um, regardless of what kind of hand you were dealt. Um, so it's really up to, you know, how your mouse plans things and how you work together in order to make the best of the hand that you got. Yeah, very cool. All right. So we've mentioned table talk a few different times. Tell me just kind of the, the overview. Like I know some games have a lot. Some have absolutely zero. Like you're not allowed to say anything. Some you can be mm -hmm. a little bit vague. So tell me a little bit more and, and kind of what a designer should be thinking about as they're trying to figure out what they want for their particular game. Mm -hmm. I think for a table talk, you really want to consider what kind of atmosphere you want. Um, for example, spades, you're not allowed to have any table talk, but you will have a like so much actual conversations going and so many um, meta things going on where people aren't talking about what's in their hand, but they are hinting and, um, you know, they're trash talking each other. 
And um, that was something that I really wanted to mimic. Um, but whenever you are designing, you have to keep in mind, like, do you want people to be entirely in their cards or do you want people to be uh, more interested in the people around them, maybe bluffing? Um, like, do you want that kind of possibility? If you want bluffing, then maybe you want a little bit more table talk. Um, but if you want it, keep it just straight strategy, um, then maybe you don't want any table talk whatsoever. Um, something that we decided on is making multiple table talk cards um, so that each household can decide what level they are comfortable with uh, because we found that it just it varied so much some people really enjoy you know being able to communicate with their partner very openly because there's a double-edged sword there um, if you allow people to talk across the table about their strategy then the other team can completely hear everything that they're talking about and can plan against it so you know it's not like a free pass to just communicate these things uh, but at the same time, some people find that the tension is in the lack of tabletop. Um, and so we wanted to give um, those players also the ability to enjoy the game that way. Um, because really, I think that it's enjoyable um, with both. And I think that it, it's an entirely different tension with both. Um, I find that people who are more intimidated by um, trick taking or don't enjoy it so much, they they enjoy kind of the maybe support role or enjoy maybe a less competitive game that the open table talk um, sort of option flows a lot better with them. But for people who are just like trick taking is my thing, I eat, breathe trick taking, you know, they're just like, it's strange to play a game that has no um, that that allows for table talk. It feels wrong. Um, and, you know, they they want that restriction on what you can say. Um, so, yes, we we personally left that up to the players. But that's something to consider um, whenever you're designing your game is who your audience is. Are you trying to get specifically trick takers? Because then um, it seems like the majority were more comfortable with having no table talk. But if you were trying to maybe reach out to um, beyond that demographic, then you might want to consider the more non-traditional um, and allowing table talk. But if you do do that, uh, I would allow it for a reason. It, it made sense for my game because we had teams, um, but I can't imagine you would ever want to table talk in a trick-taking game where there are no teams because you just be giving up information. So um, it's to your particular situation. Right. And you really just need to be intentional about how much you're putting in or not. And it depends on what you want to adjust. If you want to add more tension, then having less table talk or fewer things you can say might make a lot of sense. Uh, at the same time, I've played some games where it didn't make any sense why we couldn't say things. Like you could say, I have a really high card, but you couldn't say I have an ace. You know, like it's, like, well, <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. Like you're forcing mm -hmm. me to be vague and it, 
doesn't make sense for the type of game that it is. So I, I think just being intentional about why you're doing it and probably just takes a lot of playtesting and figuring out, okay, what makes the most sense as far as what players mm-hmm. are allowed to say. But uh, let's also talk about, you mentioned uh, players coming in maybe with some prior knowledge, maybe not. So let's talk about the learning curve and how you need to manage that as a designer because you might have a, a pretty wide spectrum of players mm-hmm. coming in, some who have played a ton of old school trick-taking games and some who've haven't played any. And so how do you kind of manage that, especially with your terminology and your rules and and all that? Yeah. So at the very beginning of my playtests, I usually like to ask um, if anybody has uh, trick-taking knowledge or if they've played trick-taking games. Um, And if they haven't, then I try to be a lot more conscious about the word choices that I make. I mean, I, I try to do it by default, but sometimes you can slip into terminology, especially if somebody's nodding along, like, yeah, I know what that is. I know what a trick is. I know what a trump card is. Like, let's go. Um, and you just kind of fall into your habits, like you're describing it to somebody who already knows. But um, it can be extremely detrimental um, as a barrier if you do not take the time to explain the mechanics of a trick-taking game. Um, because we... I feel like it was a 50-50 on whether we got people who had played trick takers or people who had played them, but weren't fans of it, didn't play them often, so still didn't know the terminology. Um, And then, you know, people who actually knew the the terminology for trick taking. And um, every time, if you know, I fell into describing the game or, or how to play and I started using that terminology, I would note that that would isolate those playtesters even more um, from the genre because like many people would express that, you know, it felt too competitive to them, the, the trick-taking genre, um, or, you know, they didn't like it for whatever reason, but, you know, that intimidation factor just increased when you had the 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 explanation for how to play the game that included all of these terms they didn't know and like they were too um they didn't want to be the person to be like I don't know what that means and everyone else is just like yeah I get it I get it so you want to be really conscious of your play testers because they may not um feel comfortable saying hey I don't know this um until the very end after they've had a bad time um, and you want to explain it without taking, um, taking, excuse me, not taking advantage, but you, you want to explain it without taking for granted that they know what trick taking is. They know what a, a book is. They know what a hand is or a Trump is. Um, so using layman's terms, 100%, please do that. Um, and, um, go slowly Um, I've also found that trick-taking, because it can get so layered if you don't know any of the terminology, um, it it helps to just walk through a hand because you can explain these things, but uh, because it's it's a combination of things, um, it it makes it much easier if you actually walk through with a visual of um, what the first hand would look like versus like just telling them and then being like, all right, everybody ready to start? So... Yeah, that's really, really good advice. And let's keep, let's keep talking about playtesting. What were some of the other things that maybe you noticed or that you were looking for in the playtesting to really figure out like how to hone in and make the best game possible? Mm-hmm. Um, so 
table talk was one thing and, and, um, you know, cluing into people's comfort levels is another. Um, but also something that I had to keep an eye on was what made people feel like they were a team. Um, that was something difficult that we had to chase after for quite a bit. Um, and I think I, I briefly touched on it earlier, but you know, when, when you have hidden information in your hands and you have, you know, your handful of cards and you have a partner you're supposed to be working with, but you don't know what's in their hand. And, um, there's no telling how much information you communicate to them, especially let's say that you have no idea about trick taking. So you, you have no way to gauge if the cards in your hand are good or, um, you know, if you are messing up the person that you're supposed to be working with, that's really intimidating. And you're supposed to be able to collaborate as a team, but that takes confidence as well. Um, and people tend to make very safe strategies, very minimal strategies when they are scared of messing up the other person that's depending on them. And, you know, if you make it so that the game or the role that that person is playing is so engaging that all they're doing is looking at their hand, that also disconnects them from the person that they are supposed to be playing with. So um, for me, balancing what it meant to be a team um, and, and while still giving players enough agency to um, feel confident enough to make decisions on their own was um, something that took a lot of time and a lot of testing. Um, and very, very often we got it wrong. Um, and, you know, sometimes we'd make little changes and then it was too much agency. And sometimes we make another changes and there's just no agency at all. There's no point for me sitting here. Um, so just going back and forth, it's, it's going to be hard to pinpoint that um, while trying to maintain whatever energy level you have aspired for, um, aspired towards um, when you created your game. Um, you just have to be mindful of what your initial core idea was, like what did you envision and you know what does being a team look like to you when it comes to um, trick taking and, and like the possibilities of that. And so for us, um, it ended up manifesting in these goal cards that, you know, both team players, teammates could look at and, and work towards without, you know, necessarily communicating things. And so even if you didn't know what your partner had, you at least knew what you could work towards and agree towards. And the other thing that I would say we really looked at with playtesting was the, <laughs> the arrangement of turns. Um, it can get... It can get very interesting whenever you go against the tradition of the person who wins um, is going to be the next person who starts the hand. That's that's a pretty um, a pretty traditional norm within trick taking. I think is that you know I win the hand, so that means I lead the next. But um, after some play testing, we decided that it was best to have it where the lead changed every single um, trick in order to kind of mitigate some of the randomness that might happen. And um, having a lead token helped with that. Um, but it was something where you had to consider things like where are players sitting? Um, how do they process things? Um, like 
the user interface wise, like where are they looking at this information? What do they reach for naturally? Um, and these are, again, the kind of things that only physical playtesting would really help. Uh, we did a lot of our playtesting um, digitally on Tabletop Simulator um, due to the pandemic, but um, then we moved it to the physical when it was possible. And um, that was something that we really had to be careful of um, because people who are familiar with trick takers will fall back into um, patterns and be confused when it doesn't go in the way that they expect. So you just want to make sure to call that out um, very clearly and very early on in um, the rules that you may have written. Um, and also whenever you are teaching the game and you have to be mindful whenever you are going against the grain that it's done with purpose um, so that it is easier for uh, players to internalize. Otherwise, it's just going to be subjective and it's going to be a pain point every time someone plays the game. Yeah, those are some really good nuggets of wisdom there. And I definitely want to highlight the the possibility that a player feels like they're screwing up their teammate. Uh, if, as anyone who's ever played spades with some, like if, if you've ever like come into the game and you don't really know, like you're still learning, still trying to figure it out, and you sit down at a table with people who've been playing a long, long time, uh, it's very much... Uh, frustrating and especially for your, your partner your teammate when you completely screw them up and you play the wrong card at the wrong time and it messes up the entire everything and, and then they usually let you know about it and it's just a very intimidating thing and so uh, to just be aware of that and be intentional about ways to maybe mitigate that or maybe mention some things in the rules or maybe some best strategies or best practices for the game I think that's that's really good and I also want to go back to what you said there at the end as far as like making sure you're doing things intentionally, especially if you're going against the grain. So let's talk about some of those like norms with trick-taking games that people are just kind of used to, and this is just kind of how the games are played. And when someone sits down, they have this expectation. And so if you go against those things, be you know do it on purpose. What are mm -hmm. some of those things, and what are some ways that maybe you can go against the grain that works really well? Yeah. Um, so a few that I mentioned are um, the table talk. People usually have the expectation that you're not going to allow any sort of a table talk. Um, also having the highest card win, um, that's a pretty big norm though. That one's probably the easiest one to kind of shake off. Um, I found that, uh, one of the biggest sticklers, the asymmetric thing, um, is that people, it takes a, a, a hand or two before people internalize that you can't, um, count, the cards from one of the partners. Like normally, let's say in spades, all four players will play a card. All four of those cards count towards the trick. And that is something that is deeply embedded into a lot of people's minds. So when I say only two players' cards count towards the trick, even though all four players are playing a card, they hear me when I say it and I repeat it. <laughs> but when we play that first hand, almost 98% of the time, they still go, oh, the mouse's card doesn't count towards this? Nope, still doesn't. It doesn't. And th that's just something, again, I've I've introduced it in the teach twice, and I, I say it multiple times, but it's just one of those things so deeply ingrained in trick-taking culture that it's, it's going to be a pain point. Um, another thing is uh, the suits. Um, just... The amount of suits and the amount of cards, um, you want to make sure you kind of balance that because people are used to a certain amount. 
um, uh, with the when you consider the face cards as well as just the numbers, the two through ten, and things like that. So you want to kind of keep that in mind when you decide to deviate from you know the standard fifty-two card deck. Um, just why you are choosing the number amounts that you are, or um, the visual look of the card, like how people expect the card to be laid out and, and how easily they are able to access that information, see it from across the table, and how that affects the flow of the game. Um, another thing, speaking of flow of the game, uh, people are very, it's split because when you talk to modern board gamers, a lot of people expect trick-taking to be a very short, quick, and snappy game. However, if you play with um, trick-takers who are, you know, more familiar or, or, you know, enjoy playing spades or euchre or hearts, something like that, they are used to a longer trick-taking game. So setting the expectation of your game length is very important um, when you are, I guess, pitching your game to people as far as getting them to play. Um, just set that expectation like, hey, this is actually a medium weight trick-taking game, or this is a light trick-taking game. Uh, Because I don't think the trick-taking genre should be just limited to um, small and fast games. Because, I mean, I was introduced on a much meatier game. And to me, that feels normal. That feels good. But to other people, that could feel like the worst because they expected a 15 minute game. <laughs> so that's, that's uh, one of the bigger ones, the bigger conventions that you want to um, kind of address when you sit down for a play test. Yeah, I totally agree on that one. I think one thing you can maybe do as a designer is maybe offer different uh, versions. And so maybe you have a 15 minute, you have a 30 minute, you have a 45, and maybe it's just a matter of adjusting the points, you know, with hearts, mm-hmm. you can adjust the points and all of a sudden the game takes a lot longer or shorter to play depending on whatever threshold that you set. And so there might be some simple ways to adjust the time, but what else, what are some ways that you found that you can adjust the amount of time that things take to play? Maybe it's lower in the number of overall hands. And so if, if you mm-hmm. have fewer hands, but you have more cards to play, is that, you know, any of that kind of stuff that you found that, that works? Yeah. So uh, we ended up making kind of a variant for tiny gamers. So younger attention spans, and we took out like the, the element of the treasures, which gave like player abilities so that would quicken the pace. Um, you can also do a two-round game instead of a three-round game if that's not quick enough for you. Because um, ultimately, you could play it in about 30 minutes. Um, but if by eliminating those, you would get you know closer to an even shorter playtime. So um, that and player count were where our um, time variance came from. Gotcha. Now let's uh, let's talk about that as well. As far as player count, what are some mm-hmm. things you ran into? Because your, your game is a team game, but I think you have mm-hmm. some variants where you don't have to be on on teams. And so some of these games uh, they go pretty high in player counts. A lot of times they start with a base level of three. Like you need at least three people to play a trick taking mm-hmm. game, not all. And but tell me what, what you ran into and, and what your thoughts are on best practices as far as player count. Yeah. So Wicked and Wise was originally developed as a four player um, team game, but we wanted to um, kind of expand on that so that you could actually get down to two players. And um, when we did that, we ended up making a very interesting uh, variation where it keeps the core of the game, but it plays very differently. Um, And I'll use the two player variant because that is the most different from the four player Uh, for two player. We had created dual roles 
um, and dual roles, you are playing as both the dragon and the mouse. But the thing is that both players are um, going to head, excuse me, going head to head as the dragons. And then in front of them, there are going to be uh, five cards face up, and that is the shared mouse hand. So you are sharing these cards. And, you know, when it's your turn as the mouse, you get to play those cards that are available. But because you are sharing it, you can also affect what cards are available for the other player. So you could play something that maybe they were looking at, or um, you could lead with a suit um, that maybe there's only one of in the mouse hand to force them to play that specific card because the mouse has to follow suit. So it became this very interesting, very strategic two-player game um, that I would not advise for the learning game because you're taking on both roles, but it it takes what you learn in the base game and it really puts all of that to the test because you are just um, kind of big braining all of these different uh, strategies between the two roles. And, and it, it offers such a very interesting and different um, gameplay from the team-based um, player counts. And whenever you get to, say, the odd player counts, such as three-player or um, five-player, uh, you have it where, you know, one or two teams are paired up. They can have the uh, right amount of players so that there's a dragon and a mouse for whatever team count. But then the odd player will act as the dual role. Um, and instead of having a, a hand that constantly um, refreshes face up, they will just have their face up hand. So all of the other teams are able to look at it. Um, they can strategize against it, but to the advantage of the dual player, they also can see everything that is in their partner's hand and um, they can strategize more effectively uh, for what they want to do on the next round. So um, it's that's a double-edged sword, um, but it also allows for them to compete evenly with the other teams. Um, and then just for the highest player count, uh, six, six people, it allows you to play as three different teams um, instead of the two teams that you would in the main four player. So um, as far as developing, whenever you're developing different player counts, um, it gets really tricky, especially when you're doing teams because um, you want to make sure that you maintain that feeling of being a team regardless of um, how many people are playing. But also the thing that we had to manage was the amount of chaos that was on the board. Because if you have six people, you have six people communicating. You also have downtime to consider. Um, and there's a lot more randomness because maybe, you know, a goal to um, win three, three hands seems manageable when there are only two teams. But when there are three teams, that seems nearly impossible. That seems like saying I'm going to win five out of five tricks. Um, so you have to really um, just keep in mind the amount of randomness that gets inserted whenever you add uh, more people to a game. And you have to be careful about how you mitigate that and, and give players at least the feeling that they have control over what's happening or how they win. Um, that, that was our biggest challenge is, is just mitigating that um, and, and giving players that feeling that they contributed to their victory and it wasn't just luck.
Yeah, that's a really, really good point and something designers really need to, to pay attention to because as you change the player count, you're likely going to change how much control players have. You're going to be messing with the chaos and the randomness. And, and so you might want to communicate that to your players up front. Maybe in the rule book, you just let people know, hey, you can go up to six players. But if you do, just be aware this is a little bit more chaotic. It's a little bit less mm-hmm. strategic. And just communicate that on the front end. Uh, otherwise, like I've played not just trick-taking games, just games in general, that the best gameplay was at four players but you could go up to five, you could go up to six. Well, mm-hmm. on game night, you get the brand new game. Everybody wants to play, and you're like, oh, well, it goes up to six, let's play it with six. And even though that's not the best player count to play it at, and, and mm-hmm. then gamers walk away going, well, that was fine, but it would have been excellent had they played it at four. Yeah. And six would have been, you know, and so I think just communicating that in the rule book or on the back of the box, you know, up to six, best before, if, if you need to do that, or maybe mm-hmm. you can figure out how to make the game just as enjoyable at, at all player counts, but just something to definitely be aware of. Well, for Tessa, this is excellent. Uh, such good advice on trick-taking games. Uh, I've been wanting to do an episode like this for a long, long time. I love these kinds of games, so I'm super glad that uh, you were able to join me. And, and closing thoughts, what would you tell someone who's listening to this? Maybe they're working on a trick-taking game. Maybe they got an idea for, out of this conversation for something they want to explore. What would be your advice to them? I would say that if it's in your heart to create a trick-taker, then make it, even if you don't know why it's necessarily unique. Because the very first week that I thought about making Wicked and Wise, I managed, I I just happened to mention it to somebody in a a meetup group that I was making a trick taker. And without knowing any other information, they were like, don't do that. There's enough trick takers in this world and none of them are special. So there's (laughs) there's nothing for you to do with that genre. (laughs) Just point blank. Oh, wow. What a uh, a wonderfully encouraging person (laughs) to have in your life. (laughs) Yes. And it's just, you know, I've, I've heard this and it just that there are going to be other people out there like that. If you want to make a trick taker, do it. Um, because a game is, should never be what it started out as it's going to evolve as it goes through more people, as it goes through play testing. And, you know, as you refine it, it becomes something different. It, it becomes the culmination of the people that you, meet and encounter and play the game with. So you never know who you're going to meet, encounter, or sit across the table with. Um, so, you know, don't don't let something or someone else cut off your dream. If you want to pursue a trick taker, just let the development decide, you know, what it will become. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree on that one. Don't let people, no matter what game you're designing, honestly, if someone says, oh, there's too many of those. Yeah, there's too many zombie games and they keep doing really, really well on the market. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at the end of the day, make the game you want to make and and have fun trying to create that project and bring it to life. Well, hey, Wicked and Wise up on Kickstarter right now. We've already talked about it and how to play whatnot, but give me like the the quick elevator pitch for why people should check it out and uh, maybe uh, back it on Kickstarter. Yeah. So Wicked and Wise is a team-based asymmetrical trick-taking team uh, game, <laughs> and it is a game where you are uh, dragons and mice. The dragons are in charge of the trick-taking, and the mice are in charge of stacking their partner's hands with all the good cards. They are also in charge of all of the money, um, trying to make sure that those dragons get all the coins that they want so they can hoard them later. Um it is a game where, you know, use asymmetrical roles. Um, it plays two to six players and it really allows you to either play head to head with your favorite person or um, it allows you to play in a big group. So 
I hope that you check it out. Um, and it is something that's close to my heart. Um, if you enjoy spades or euchre, I think that you will really enjoy this. And even if you aren't a fan of trick-taking games, it allows you to play in a supporting role where you are just there for your partner. You're using all the abilities, manipulating the cards and the rules of the trick. And I think you would have fun as that role as well. So please check it out if you have a chance. Awesome. Well, for Tess, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with Wicked and Wise and all the Thank things you. at Funko that you can't talk about right now and everything <laughs> else you got going on right now. Thank you very much. It was great being here. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?